Welcome to Deep in History. This is your co-host, uh, Marcus Grodi, the founder and president of the Coming Home Network International, and I'm joined by my, my good friend, Monsignor Jeffrey Steenson. Hello, Monsignor. How are you this morning? Hello, Marcus. Good to be with you today from Traverse City, Michigan today. Well, it's... Um, on grandparent duty. <laughs> grandparent patrol, I guess I'd call it, yeah. Well, I... You've got grandparent duty. I haven't had grandparent duty in a couple of weeks. I, my duty is with my cattle right now out on my yeah. farm. So, uh, <laughs> you know, it's a quite a little different ambiance. But uh, uh, it's great to, to join you and thank all of you for joining us on this continuing study of Irenaeus' book Against Heresies. And we're in book three. And our goal for today is to uh, focus on chapter three of book three. Excuse me. Chapter, yeah, yeah. Chapter three yeah. of chap, section three of chapter three of book three. Section three, yeah. Yeah, three, three, three. Yeah. And um, it really is a continuation of what we focused on last week, Monsignor, because we, we can't ignore section two as the introduction to section three. Because Irenaeus, here's the problem. He's got all these Gnostic teachers influencing the Christians, not just in Lyon, but all over. And so the people are being confused with all these voices. And the question is, how can we know which of these voices is true? And... It's almost startling to me to to realize the interesting connectivity to our day and age today, because if he if the people of his day were inundated with false teachers, we today are inundated, yeah, infinitely almost. It, yes, in, exactly, and that. And he says, you know, and, and in all these churches, he says, you can find a secure route to the truth in the tradition that the apostles had, had laid there. Um, so we, and we, we were talking last week about how um, if you had to make a list of everybody, every succession list in the church, it'd take a while. So he short circuits it by uh, that argument at the beginning of uh, of book three, uh, chapter three, that we can take a shortcut by considering the Church of Rome um, because of its uh, more excellent apostolic foundations and um, being the Church of Peter and Paul. And I, we were talking about that, Marcus. Maybe it's a good point to yep. bring this up that um, a, a lot of Catholic people um, may not be aware of this, but in these early centuries, we don't see the primacy of Peter specifically invoked. Um, Irenaeus doesn't treat that at all. Um, the Pope is important, 
because he succeeds in a church that was founded by Peter and Paul. So that's a development to, to come in the church's life. Yeah, probably to be as accurate as we can for potentially mixed audience. First of all, we probably shouldn't use the word pope at this time in the history of the church. Correct, yeah. Because right. the right. pope didn't become an official title of the Bishop of Rome until, what, maybe the 7th century. And there are many... Though, though, it, was, it, was, though it was used beforehand. Yes. But what I always found, when I was a student, I was in the 4th century... The Bishop of Rome was called Pope, but so was the Patriarch of Alexandria. <laughs> yeah, yeah. The, so, so it, it took a while. Title. It was Papa. Yeah. Um, yeah. And I don't yeah. know when, I don't know when presbyters, priests began being addressed as Father. I don't know when that happened in history. Um, but yeah. the, the point was this, this was a, a an evolving or developing thing. So, so it is. We got to be careful using Pope. The, the list of the popes. These are the lists of the bishops of Rome, to be accurate. And, but you were also getting to the issue that there are a couple of Catholics debating and making a big deal on the internet right now about whether you can separate or not the Petrine office from the Bishop of Rome, and. I frankly don't want to jump into that debate, but but it's almost a moot point at this time in history when we're looking at Irenaeus's book written in 175 AD, because at this point, mm -hmm. there is no emphasis on the Petrine authority of the Bishop of Rome, because in fact, he says in section two of book three, chapter three, that... Um, the most ancient and known to all, the church founded and established at Rome by two most glorious apostles, Peter and Paul. So it's not so much a yeah. Petrine authority as apostolic authority. It's really what's connected to mm -hmm. the bishops of Rome. This unique, as he said, the um, on account of its higher original, the way... Keeble translates that word, right. the higher original. That's why all, the whole church, and he says, I mean the faithful on all sides must needs agree because we're in the tradition which is of the apostles hath ever been preserved by them of all countries. So there's that unity of the Bishop of Rome and the apostolic tradition that is there because of Peter and Paul. And he is saying, yeah, they never separate because that was where Peter and Paul were, and therefore it's their supreme authority, uh -huh. and that's why all the churches need to agree with this church in the center of the kingdom. And, you know, it's um, as we go forward today now, it, we mustn't think that Irenaeus is, um, I should say Irenaeus, I'm in England right now, <laughs> in my head. Um, we, because when, he, when we start to look at the succession list going forward in book three, yes. um, um, he, he's very clear that it starts with Peter 
isn't, isn't he? Um, well, let me read, and because that's my job today. You are the patristic scholar, Monsignor, and I'm the reader. Yeah. Uh, technically. <laughs> okay, you're the reader. Actually, I'm going to have to... Um, this is very interesting. It and, is uh, very interesting. Sometimes three. If you read that, because I've just I've just contradicted myself. So you go ahead and yes. save me. Yes. He here's what he says, section three. The blessed apostles, then, having founded and builded the church. Now let's pause there, right, Monsignor, because there's the part that's a conundrum to you right now. Yeah. Uh-huh. Yeah. So he's beginning the bishop of Rome with the blessed apostles. Then having founded and built the church, where does that refer to? It refers back to the previous paragraph where he says that the church founded and established at Rome by two most glorious apostles, Peter and Paul. So the beginning, Irenaeus begins the bishops, the succession of the bishops of Rome with Peter and Paul. And then he goes on, the blessed apostles then, having founded and built the church, committed the ministry of the episcopate to Linus. And of this Linus, Paul makes mention in the epistles to Timothy. And his successor is Anencletus. And after him, in the third place, from the apostles, the bishopric is allotted to Clement. Plural. Apostles, plural. Yeah. The bishopric is allotted to Clement, who had both seen the blessed apostles and conferred with them, and had the doctrine of the apostles yet sounding in his ears, and their tradition before his eyes. Not singly, for still many were left of those who had been instructed by the apostles. Now, I want to stop there, because there is so much in that paragraph that is is worth contemplating, isn't it, Monsignor? Oh my, yes. We don't have a clear statement that Peter was the first bishop of Rome here. Not in this paragraph, not in Irenaeus. What he, at this point, recognizes is that, essentially he's saying that Rome was initially led by the two founders two apostolic founders, Peter and Paul. Mm -hmm. Now, that we're not saying that there aren't other sources that might point out Peter as the first bishop at this time, but Irenaeus is making the point of the two found founders. And, and that would be not inconsistent with what we find in the other early apostolic fathers, where... Um, the word bishop is applied to the second generation of overseers of the church. So the apostles are not, strictly speaking, bishops. Bishops are under the apostles. Right. And are under them. Yeah. Yeah. I, uh, um, exactly. And uh, I didn't grab my scriptures with me this morning, but uh, in Ephesians 4, it talks about, you know, the some were apostles and then preachers and teachers and evangelists and all that. But the first group was apostles, which was the issue because it took a while for Paul to convince everybody that he was an apostle. 
some were questioning that. Mm-hmm. And he had to defend his apostleship by saying in Galatians that when he was in Jerusalem, he got the right hand of fellowship from Cephas, from Peter, and the others yeah. who had affirmed wow. his apostleship. So his apostleship, though he'd gotten it directly from Christ, it still had to be affirmed by Cephas and the others when he was in Jerusalem. So that was the foundation. But we also know later that Barnabas was called an apostle. So apostle mm-hmm. wasn't limited to the 12, the 11 and then added Matthias to replace Judas, but it expanded to be those to whom uh, experienced the had a, had a, a direct experience with Jesus. So those that had been there during the ministry, but then we also have Paul who had his unique thing. So that's why he's an apostle. Yeah. Um, yeah. No, it's um, it's fascinating, and I, it's just I think it's good to to be aware that. Um, that there's going to be some significant development that will have to happen yet before we get to a system such as we have today. You know, I hesitant to, to say this in public in a way, but it's really, a, to me, a reminder to those of us that consider ourselves Catholic apologists that we have to be careful in the accuracy of the boldness of what we are saying. And... Yeah. Um, here we have the recognition that the, that the beginning of the bishops of Rome begins with the two, at least in the words of Irenaeus. And so, so, I'm pulling, oh, sorry, Mark, because I was just pulling this from my memory, but when I think about um, in the early church, the first evidence that we have about the Bishop of Rome claiming for himself um, the successorship of Peter actually comes from someone who is complaining about the way he was abusing authority um, in the letters of St. Cyprian, um, complaining about, do you know about that Stephen up there? He, he's going around saying that he's a successor of Peter and he's acting on Peter's authority. Yeah. Um, so it, it takes a few centuries for this to all get worked out. It took a few centuries for uh, we to find any written evidence of any any you, of not just bishops of Rome but others using Matthew 16 as the foundation for Petrine authority. Right. Now I know right. our non-Catholic friends are going to say, "See, so it was invented later." Well, it doesn't mean that it wasn't always understood or or appreciated is just that's the first time we have a written record of it becoming a part of an argument mm-hmm. um, that's right and, and and clearly you know as we go forward at the time right after the council of nicaea there seemed to have been um an implicit recognition that the bishop of rome was a kind of Supreme Court Chief Justice, if you will, that yeah. if a bishop got in trouble in his local province, he could always appeal to Rome to help adjudicate the dispute with the other bishops. So it seems like that, you know, there was something implicitly understood about the 
primacy of Rome in this. Well, it was happening at the very time this was written. Because it, though it doesn't show up, yeah. I don't think, I can't remember if it's in this book at all. I know it's in some of the letters, but the, the Easter controversy on the date of Easter. Yeah. And yeah. so you have the, the Bishop of Rome declaring one tradition, and then the bishops of the East declaring another tradition, both of them apostolic traditions. Mm on what day you should mm -hmm. celebrate Easter, whether it's always on a Sunday, that was Rome's position, or whether it was depending on when Passover was, regardless of what day of the week. If I remember right, that's the issue. And Rome was saying it's got to be on right. Sunday because Sunday was when Jesus rose and and they were saying, but this right. is the tradition of, of the apostle John. So it's whenever, okay. They both had good arguments. So it took a while for that to get settled. It isn't settled yet by the time of Irenaeus but they're going to oh. the Bishop of Rome to decide it. Right? Polycarp goes to Rome to, to come That's to a right. conclusion. Goes, yeah. the, the, the Bishop of Rome uh -huh. excommunicates and, some bishops because of the issue. And Irenaeus writes to the Bishop of Rome to say, don't do that, you know, or encourages them not to do that. But behind that is the assumption of the authority of the Bishop of Rome. Very good. Yeah, that's right. That's right. So, okay, that's this whole yeah. issue of the, of the beginning of this. We know Peter's there. We know, we know, I yeah. know separated Christian brothers that don't even believe Peter was ever in Rome. So, I mean, that's a whole other issue. But here's the assumption that, no, Peter and Paul were there. And then at some point, yeah. they're martyred. And at some point after they're martyred, Linus becomes the second. And... I know this is a little, I've read some commentators that question Irenaeus's accuracy, but Irenaeus equates that Linus with the Linus that's mentioned in the letters of Paul. Yes, he does. And as and at the very beginning of that section, um, he says that um, the apostles um, committed this ministry of the Episcopate to Linus, they ordained him for it, Right. Yes. Well, again, I get nervous when we use the word ordain because that came to mean something different. Because at this time, ordination, as far as I'm concerned, when I interpret it, means that this man that we're laying our hands on to be the bishop of a place is a trustworthy uh, transmitter of the apostolic tradition. So when they would ask, is this guy a, a trustworthy? Well, in other words, his, his line of succession, if you will, the other way around, from him back to Peter and Paul, is he connected in the issue is not so much the laying out of hands as it is the authentic transmission of the apostolic faith. Would you agree with that, Monsignor? Uh, no. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I think, I, I agree there's some ambiguity about how this all happened, but the apostles laid hands on 
their successors, they weren't just simply issuing a certificate or a letter of good standing, to put it in modern terms. Um, there was something implicitly given to them. Um, I mean, look at, I think St. Ignatius of Antioch would be, his letters are worth for using in, in this because it's clear that it's clear that some spiritual power has been transmitted to them. And at least it seems to me, though, I totally agree with you that the way um, this gets developed in the later uh, theology of the church is some somewhat problematical. Um, Yeah. You know, that, you know, I make the argument that the bishop is the only, you know, sort of, authentic, uh, proper Christian in, in the diocese. And then everybody else is a Christian by virtue of being, um, in communion with him and, and, you know, um, receiving the sacraments through his ministry, if you will. Uh, that's a little more problematical. Yeah. I, and, like, you, and you and I don't necessarily agree exactly on it, but I think we, we, uh, in some ways we're on the same page. If I were to say that there was an emphasis, the laying on of hands was, you know, passing on of spiritual gifts. Of course, I I agree with that. We see that uh, in 1 Corinthians uh, 14 and 15, in 12, 14, 15, the idea of the gifts being passed on for the work of ministry, Ephesians 4, equipped uh, for the, uh, for empowering the people for the work of the ministry. It's all there. But to me, the emphasis here was, especially in, in the context of here, how do we know what's true? How do we know what's true? Yes, because yeah. this man was affirmed by this man who was affirmed by this man who was affirmed by apostle. And so it's a, it's a matter of truth. It's not yet a matter of yeah. passing on of some mark or character that will develop later in the, we don't even see reference to. Right the mark of a sacramental ordination until maybe the fifth century. But what I, it seemed to me what's happened later on, as we get farther and farther in history away from this, the question becomes not so much whether this man who's been ordained is still holding on to that apostolic tradition, but who ordained him. That becomes more important Mm -hmm. as we get on. I think for your background, coming from Anglicanism to the Catholic Church. The issue was not whether you, coming into the Catholic Church, whether you could trace your ordination back to the apostolic tradition, but who it was that ordained you. That became the issue. Yeah. Even though we could, we all, all the Anglican bishops, of course, from probably the 1930s on, all were able to, trace it back into um, the Catholic Church through the old Catholic hands that have been um, played on them. It's a fascinating story. But, but you know, that's an interesting yeah. point that, that we're discussing here because, okay, so these ordinations aren't quite right. So we get somebody who has the right hands laid on him, and if they lay their hands on me, then I'm in good shape. But you see, there's no discussion whatsoever there anymore as to what Irenaeus is dealing with here. The question is no longer That's whether right. what a person believes is the apostolic faith, it's whether you got the right hands laid on you. So along the process, 
we've kind of lost part of it. We got to keep both. Yeah, yeah. Because the point here, well, I can't agree more. Yeah, the the point that Aaron has is making here is about the truth, not so much whether the hands were the right person. It 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 was whether that person was committed to the truth. And so what you're saying here yeah. that Linnaeus, uh, Linus was affirmed in that way because he was holding to the apostolic tradition. And then we see after, we don't, we don't have very many details on these early popes because I think most of the documents for the earliest popes was lost during the persecutions. And it wasn't until, what's that big collection of, you know, the Liber, uh, there's a big collection of the earliest writings that give the biographies of these popes. They don't come until later. So, uh, some say that Anne and Cletus is really two guys. Uh, so and that's why right. we, he's, yeah, because he sometimes gets confused with uh, with uh, what numbers of Anne and Cletus and Anacetus. Yeah, sometimes they get confused. Anacetus is number um, 10 in the list. Yep. Um, but, but then we have in the third, anyway, yeah. we have in the third place a well-known bishop, Clement, who really oh, yeah. is as famous as Irenaeus himself. Yeah. And um, by the way, Marcus, I just want, I made a note to myself to ask you this. Um, does the Coming Home Network still publish, have in print that book, wonderful book of translations on the Apostolic Fathers? It was Kenneth by Dr. Howell, Kenneth Howell. We we do. Yeah. Um, although I think we we gave Ken a large supply of those when he moved on, but um, I'm pretty sure they're uh -huh. still available. But it's a tremendous translation of yeah, Clement's letter. Yeah, it's a wonderful edition that you published on that. So, yeah. Well, I, I've always been enchanted with Clement's letter to uh, the Corinthians, um, especially from my time when I was supervising churches. Um, I, I always thought it is, you know, what happened in up there in Corinth um, is I guess the old pastor, the old bishop or pastor or whatever his status was, wasn't cool enough for the congregation. And <laughs> they went with a younger model and basically they overturned the authority of the, of the church in Corinth. And it's Clement, Clement comes to help and teach them why it is that they must adhere to this um, authority structure and not appoint their own pastors. It's an incredible book in terms of reminding us to be aware of congregationalism in certain aspects of it anyway. And two points of the book that always stuck out for me, uh, coming from my background as an evangelical, it, and two things. Number one, what amazes me about Clement is that from beginning to end, like Irenaeus, uh, his book is like a Bible study of the Old Testament. Everything through yeah. Clement, he's quoting the Old Testament 
and knowing the Old Testament and using the Old Testament with great authority as a foundation for what they're doing in the church, where so many modern Christians only read the New Testament and not the Old, we don't know it. In the early church, it was the foundation for their faith. It was Clement. Clement mm-hmm. preceded mm-hmm. Irenaeus. So when you read Clement, there, there are not very many references to New Testament books like there are in Irenaeus. Because we're, you know, we're at least 75 years earlier than Irenaeus, if not 100. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Okay. The yeah. second thing is what you see in Clement, and you see it in a number of patristics, is every single time, whenever parents are addressed on how to bring up their children, invariably there's only one advice that's ever given in all the patristics is you bring up your children in the fear of the Lord, period. And we live in a day and age today where you rarely ever hear reference of fear of the Lord, especially in reference to how you bring up our children. But that was the underlying assumption. Because why do you bring them up in the fear of the Lord? Fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And if you don't start there, the one thing they ain't going to get is wisdom. Yeah. <laughs> and we're living in that day and age. I, you, you, Marcus, you pointed out that you know, Clement is so early. And um, one of the things that always jumped out about that book to me, too, is there, it, it's one of those arguments that is a dead end. He's trying to come up with some metaphors for the resurrection to explain the resurrection of our Lord. <laughs> and he does, two, he does two things, if I recall, that um, just weren't going to go anywhere. One was to cite the example of the god of, of Phoenix um, in Egypt. Yeah. Um, and now buried and comes back um, that doesn't work too good. <laughs> nor does, nor does uh, he. Uh, nor does an appeal to nature. You know that springtime brings all these new li- new pieces of life. Um, the resurrection is not a cyclical thing. You know, and so it's interesting that that both of those type of um, metaphors for the resurrection pretty much drop out right away after yeah. Clement. Um, it didn't work. Well, it, it sounds like an interesting, interesting introduction to the patristics and the idea that eventually you have Justin Martyr and um, Clement of Alexandria, Origen, trying to look for examples in Greek philosophy to, uh-huh. to form arguments for the mysteries of Christianity. And so, in a way, and, yeah, and evangelization was the motive, you know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Trying to explain it to people. How do you explain the Trinity? Yeah, to to folks. So, so boy, we could talk a long time about good old Clement, Clement, who had both seen the blessed apostles and conferred with them, and had the doctrine of the apostles mm-hmm. yet sounding in his ears and their tradition before his eyes. So once again. Irenaeus is emphasizing the point here, guys, is what he's saying. It's about the passing on, the authentic, trustworthy passing on of the doctrine of the apostles. And for Clement, he he himself heard it, 
and saw it. And that reminds me of, of John yeah. in his first letter, that which we have seen and we have heard, we pass on to you. John says in his first letter, we, this is that. This is, again, is that passing on of this apostolic tradition. Um, and then he says, not singly, but still many were left of those who had been instructed by the apostles. You know, I'm reminded of, of uh, some scriptures in the beginning of the book of Judges that are very interesting. Because it basically says, that as long as Joshua was alive and as long as the people who knew Joshua were alive, the people stayed faithful. They remained faithful to their mm. promise. Remember Joshua says, who will follow God? If as for me and my house, we will follow the Lord. And all the people say, we too, we will do it too. Yay, 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 yay. And uh, though they were all social distancing, I'm sure, but they were all screaming in, in support of, but only as long as Joshua was alive and the people that knew him were alive, did they stay faithful. And then it says, as soon as the people that knew Joshua and had known him passed away, the people started falling away, following after the gods of the people. And it's interesting to reflect on that, to reflect on the battles that were happening even at the time that Irenaeus is writing. You know, it's interesting to reflect on that because he makes a point here of saying that these early bishops of Rome, Clement, themselves were alive during the times of the apostles. They heard and saw, and there were still many left around who were instructed by the apostles. But it's almost as soon as all those people are starting to pass away that these other voices become stronger and stronger and stronger in more of a battle. And so the importance of uh, Irenaeus showing that the apostles left, they had designed and left a mechanism by which the truth is passed on. And it says, he goes on to say that in the time then of this Clement, no small tumult having occurred among the brethren which were in Corinth, the church in Rome wrote a most effective letter to the Corinthians urging them to be at peace together and renewing their faith and setting forth the tradition which is, which it had recently received from the apostles, which tradition proclaims one God almighty, maker of heaven and earth, framer of man, who brought on the flood and called Abraham, who led the people out of the land of Egypt, who converted, conversed with Moses, who ordained the law and the prophets, who prepared fire for the devil and his angels, that he is set forth by the churches as the father of our Lord Jesus Christ, those who will may learn from the letter itself and discern the apostolic tradition of the church, the epistle being ancienter than our present false teachers and divisors of another God above the artificer and creator of all things that exist. Once again, there's a mouthful there, almost like one long sentence, 
but he's again emphasizing this apostolic tradition that can be identified in that letter of Clement, is what he's saying. In that letter, you will find the apostolic and tradition. That's right, in that letter. Yeah. And how is that, um, and all these things that he lists here, these are issues that the Gnostics took a different um, position on, and he makes the argument here long before your teachers ever showed up, this was written down. Yeah. by a successor of the apostles in Rome. It, it's interesting to note here, because in the earliest, as the lists of the New Testament were forming during this time, there wasn't one yet that we know of, but I mean, mm-hmm. I think Marcion had the, one of the first lists, excuse me. But just the idea of a New Testament had evolved at this time, if you will. We don't, we don't have a, the record of when the first mm-hmm. person said, hey, let's let's add some books to the Old Testament collection. We don't know when that happened, but it, 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 it happened, guided by the Holy Spirit. But in those earliest lists, Clement was a part of the list. It took a while for the church to decide whether Clement and why? Because right here, Irenaeus is equating its witness yeah. with the other New Testament documents. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, so let's, um, let's move on, unless you have another comment you want to make about good old Clement here. Except it's well worth uh, people picking up his letter. Um, it's such a blessing to read that letter. And um, not difficult to read. It's it's a joy to. And it's available um, if you go to New Advent, for example, and go to the Fathers of the Church and look up Clement, and there it is. So it's readily available lots and lots of different ways. All right. So he's waxed eloquently on Clement of all the early bishops of Rome, which screams, if you will, the recognition that Irenaeus gave for the authority trustworthy authority of Clement's letter uh, as a conveyor of the tradition of the apostles. So that's once again why to read that. But let's go on to the next paragraph, because now we have the, co- the completion. Because okay. this Clement, again, uh-huh. Avaristus succeeds, and Avaristus Alexander, and then Existus, in like manner, is appointed sixth from the apostles. And after him, Telesphorus, who was also a glorious martyr. Afterwards, Hyginus, I think he was one of the first dentists in the church. Um, then, <laughs> then Pius, and after him, Anesitus. Anesitus having been succeeded by Soter, the bishop's office is now held in the twelfth place from the apostles, by Eleutherius. So let's pause there. So he was the bishop during Irenaeus's time here. All right. Um, he uses a number of words to describe the passing of the baton from Peter and Paul to Linus mm-hmm. to Anesitus to Clement. He uses a number of words, succeeds, uh, appointed, Mm -hmm. um, 
you know, there's a, there's a number of words to describe this, right, Monsignor? To try and understand. The bishop's office right. uses the word office is held there. So, Marcus, when we get to the next sentence then, yes. how, I'm interested how you read this. By the same order and in the same succession, both the tradition from the apostles and the church and the preaching of the truth have come down to us. The same order and the same succession. Yeah. Are we talking there, do you think, about the office of bishop? Well, right before, in the sentence before, the bishop's office is now held in the twelfth place from the apostles. So this affirms what you said earlier, that there's a distinction between apostle and bishop. Bishop is, is or episcopoi. Mm-hmm. Episcopoi is the title for the successors of the apostles, right? Yeah. Um, in 1 Timothy 3, you have the apostle Paul instructing the episcopoi Timothy about the qualifications for somebody if he wants to be an episcopoi. It's not about whether you want to become an apostle. It's about whether you want to become a bishop. Right. So that's First Timothy three. Um, by the same order and in the same. And you six, have to be the husband of one little wife, you know. Well, we don't want to go there, but that, it does say that as a criteria there in in First Timothy three. And you can't be a recent convert okay. either. Yeah. You can't be a recent convert. No. I'm yeah. Yeah. Very uh, well, but okay. <laughs> Um, so he has by the same order and in the same succession. So does the word, I don't have the Greek in front of me. The same succession points to the one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, down to 12. But by the same order, I think so. Is that order this just another way of saying the same thing? Or is that order the appointing? You know what I mean? By the same order. Yeah, I don't know and what that's the gr- my question too. Yeah, I, there's no Greek here, so this would be Latin, tra- a Latin translation. Okay. Um, and I don't have I don't have it with me at hand here, but um, um, there's also a, I assume we're talking basically synonymously yeah. here. Okay, probably is. It's just the English yeah. there I'm trying to make yeah. question too yeah. much of it there. Yeah. But we also have both. Now the word both implies two things as opposed to that's right yeah as opposed to saying the same thing twice both on the one hand he doesn't use that phrase but he's saying the tradition from the apostles in the church and the preaching of the truth hath come down to us and is there a distinction and frankly it seems to me that there is a distinction and I've always taken the touch. Yeah, if you go back to page 204, um, mm-hmm. and if you go to the top of that, for indeed the Lord of all gave to the apostles the power of the gospel, and by them we have known the truth, the teaching of the Son of God. And jump down. For by no others mm-hmm. have we known the method of our salvation than those by whom the gospel came to us, 
which is both in the first place preached by them and afterwards by the will of God handed down to us in the scriptures to be the ground and pillar of our faith. So it seems to me there's an often that when he talks about the preaching of the truth, that in many ways for him that's equivalent to the gospel and the gospels and the scriptures. And the scriptures, yes. That's how I would read that too. So here we have tradition and, and scripture. And, but he, yes, we do. And in when we next week when we get into the next section, um, he clearly treats two different entities here. The um, the, the tradition that is taught and handed on in the church, and then that original deposit, um, which you know the apostles had. So it's very interesting how this is starting to develop here. It, in our in our understanding and reading of it. I think it's very fascinating. Again, yeah. you know, yeah. the, eventually those that develop a sola scriptura idea deny the the unity mm -hmm. or the conjunctive nature of tradition and scripture. But we see that from the very beginning mm -hmm. in Irenaeus, there's no dichotomy between the two. Uh, in fact, the reason they're both trustworthy is that they come from the same apostolic source. They're handed on from Christ to the apostles and then to their that's successors. Right. Yeah. And that's the reason that we all have to un be united with this church founded by the apostles, because the only way we can know which tradition to trust and which scriptures to trust. Because you have Gnostic scriptures, you have, you know, Gnostic writings, Gnostic teachings. Exactly. How do you yeah. know? Because both of them are trustworthy because they're guarded. If you, if you will, by the Holy Spirit, which Jesus promised in John 14, 15, and 16, to guide the apostles so they would pass on that which is true. And that's the foundation here. Um, yeah, this is a very full demonstration of the unity and sameness of the living faith, which from the apostles, even until now, hath been preserved in the church and passed onward in the truth. Whoa, what a powerful statement. That's not just us today saying as a Catholic apologists what we believe. This was Irenaeus saying that very summary conclusion. It's a section. The unity and sameness. The unity and sameness of the living faith, the unity and sameness of the living faith. Wasn't it earlier when he talks about that the faith is the same up in Germany as it is down here? Wasn't it earlier in the book? That's right. Yeah. Yeah. And we'll get, he's get, it's later in this book. I forget. I've read. He's the, mentioned it all. No, he is. Yeah, that's right. It is earlier. Yeah, that's right. You know, when you, we've read the book one a of couple the great, times. One of his great, yeah. yeah, the unity yeah. and sameness it's of the... It's incredibly important. Yeah. So you can't have... I mean, the way that uh, sometimes we hear in our church today that, you know, Christians and 
in Germany may um, discern a, an important question differently than Christians in Africa or or in the in in Latin so, America or something like that. That is an unacceptable argument. Full stop. Yeah, I mean the way we might it doesn't work. The way we might live it out in Central Africa versus Alaska might be different, but the unity and sameness of the life-giving faith. I mean, that phrase is, this is a very full demonstration of the unity and the sameness of the life-giving faith, which from the apostles, and then he says, even until now, hath been preserved in the church and passed onward in the truth. That's a very powerful, you know, take that and then compare it to, to Christendom today and to what we see. And sadly, even within the Catholic Church, we see divisions. We see high ups yeah. at each other's throats because they can't agree on certain things. Or, And if anything, it's what's so much worse today than it was during Irenaeus' time. Uh, the internet means that a person in you know, in East Milwaukee can have an opinion and it's in China at, at a breath. Yeah. And so we're, we're inundated with a cacophony of conflicting of voices today on what is true. How are we going to know today how hard it was during his time? But even today, fortunately, we have a lot of printed material. But it comes back to the same statement. This is the very demonstration of the unity and sameness of the life-giving face which from the apostles, even until now, hath been preserved in the church and passed onward in the truth. Well, Monsignor, I think that's a great place for us to pause. We'll pick up next week, uh, really focusing on Polycarp. Okay, do you have any um, cl closing thoughts for that we've just talked about? Yeah, I do. Uh, yeah, just one thing I'd like to say, and you you, you experienced this as well. Um, after... after um, the lockdown ends, God willing, and people can start making pilgrimages safely again. Um, for those that are able to make a pilgrimage to Rome, one of the most enchanting experiences is to go to the Basilica of St. Paul's outside the walls. Yeah. And uh, when you stand in that great, well, fourth century basilica, basically, it was the fourth century kind of a shape, and look in the clerestory up high in the windows in the, what would be the aisles of the, of the nave, you have all of the popes, um, little, their, their little um, frescoes of all the popes, starting with Peter, and working all the way around up to Francis. And I remember when I was um, um, really on the eve of my conversion to the Catholic Church, just being there just blew me away to see that, that visual reminder of of the tradition. Uh, I don't know, if, there are probably other places where all the popes are represented in art like that, but I, that's the one that really sticks in my yeah. mind. Yeah. And again, and so, and so like I there. remember last, last year, we, I, I went through this list of 12 in Irenaeus, I could point them all out on the top of the <laughs> on the top of the church. 
I also remember visiting uh, the Church of St. Clement down in the ruins in the basement there. What a great yeah. experience that yeah. was. And we strongly recommend that to you. Oh, yeah. And if you can, hopefully we can soon. That's right. And that was that was Clement. That was our Clement that we just talked about here, you know. Yep. yep. And you can see where uh, that early Christian altar down there. It's incredible. So yep. All right, well, Monsignor, how about closing us with a, a prayer and a blessing, if you would? Yes, of course, I would love to. Um, Marcus, I know the, the podcast goes out um, a little bit later than the day. Today sure. we're celebrating uh, the feast of uh, St. Hippolytus and, and Pope Pontian. Um, and I just wanted to kind of close with a remembrance, because we, we've been talking about problems of division in the church. Yeah. Hippolytus, Hippolytus in the early uh, third century was a very difficult, irrational, irascible traditionalist. <laughs> and he broke communion with the church um, and then persecuted the church. And he was um, sent into exile, uh, into a prison colony in Sardinia. And so was the Pope, Pontian. And one of the beautiful traditions of the church is that Hippolytus was reconciled to Pontian and to the church before they were both martyred for the faith. Yeah. And then they were eventually, their bodies were brought back to Rome and we have celebrated their feast days on the same days. And I just find that the most beautiful example of the power of... Yeah. Um, of Christian reconciliation. Yeah, I had read and, somewhere uh, that this paper. I had read somewhere that um, that one of the reasons Hippolytus broke away was because they had the audacity to translate the Mass from Greek into Latin. <laughs> I don't know if that's true, but that was during his time period when the when the vernacular of yeah. Rome became the primary language of the mass. And so here we have yeah. this traditionalist at the time being angry and separates himself to hold to the Greek. I mean, that's what I had read in, a, in one of the histories of the liturgies. But, but also most of what we know about the early mass, we come from the, we get from the writings of Hippolytus. That's true. Yeah, that's right. That's right. So I, I know as our, we close with prayer that I just want to remind everybody that the church has these wonderful traditions of the power of, of reconciliation and communion. They bring us back together again. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. amen. Blessed Lord, we thank you for the wonderful writings of St. Irenaeus on this whole idea of Christian unity and how it is all founded on the truth and on the love that we have with one another as members of your body. And we pray for the unity of the church and we pray for our part in advancing the same so that we can fulfill what our Lord prayed for, that all, all may be one. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, amen. Thank you, Monsignor, and thank all of you that are joining us. We look forward to hearing any of your comments or critiques 
um, of our program. And uh, we look forward to joining you again next week on the next episode of Deep in History. God bless. Thank you. God bless.